Hello, good morning, and welcome to Faithfully Memphis. Uh, my name is Emily Austin, and I send you greetings on this first Thursday of the Easter season. Yay, we made it through Lent. Or did we? Um, this week, I'm really excited to be on Faithfully Memphis interviewing one of my new friends who I met on good old Twitter. Her name is Laura Wilson, and she is a practitioner of Orthodox Christianity. So she's going to be joining us a little bit later in the show. One of the interesting differences between uh, Western Christianity and Orthodox Christianity is that we are on different well we're not really on different calendars and we'll and we talk a little bit about that during our conversation but uh, we do not have the same dates that we celebrate the feasts of Easter and so it, this week many Christians who practice an Orthodox faith are in their Holy Week and they on the Western Easter would have celebrated Palm Sunday. So we wish all of our Orthodox brothers and sisters and siblings a wonderful Holy Week and wishing you a very, very blessed Easter tide. But yeah, it's Easter. It's a season. It's not just a day. Today is Easter Thursday. Um, this is 50 days where we think about a risen Christ. On Easter Day, I was looking through the lectionary that our church reads from, and I wanted to share with you the gospel that if you went into many, many Episcopal and other mainline Christian churches, you probably would have heard this rendition of the resurrection from John's gospel. And I'm going to read um, a piece of that because I think that it's important. This is from John 20, verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in it, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, 
one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And then she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus had said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, and that means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On Easter morning, when I, uh, I, I typically am an early riser, even on the weekends, and I, and Easter morning is no exception to that, and I was up, and I was doing my quiet time, which I love. My quiet times have become really important to me the older I've gotten, and it's harder to find moments of peace and quiet. I was reading through the lectionary, and I had the window open, but it was a really kind of crisp, pretty morning. Um, and I was reading this gospel and I was hearing the birds chirping and just all that ambient sound. And it reminded me a lot of why I think some churches and some people really enjoy those sunrise services on Easter to kind of put themselves in that moment of resurrection where those first followers of Jesus saw the risen Christ and it's a very immersive experience. But on Faithfully Memphis recently, we've been talking a lot about women in the church and the roles that they can play. And I just fixated on Mary Magdalene. I was just thinking about how she was the first to see. And I think that I saw somewhere on Twitter, on Instagram, or some, I mean, maybe I read it in an actual book or whatever. But the first preacher was a woman. It was Mary Magdalene. Can you imagine what Mary Magdalene must have felt to approach the tomb and to see that stone rolled away that morning? I mean, I can't. I cannot imagine. And then later to see and interact with a glorious living Christ after she had cared for this brutalized, dead body of someone she deeply cared about, who's someone who she believed was her savior. I mean, it is just beautifully jarring. It, there's nothing easy about it. You know, one of the things that we see over and over again in the Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles is that when you interact with Christ, it's, it's a jarring, frightening thing. We feel big feelings. And, you know, when, after you've walked the way of Lent and are ambushed by joy, and resurrection. It's 
it's a lot. It's a lot. So I invite you to embrace that discomfort. Those two very oppositional things, just darkness and light and, and hold space for that. Another one of the things that I've been thinking about is how in that gospel, we have the angels and Jesus both asking Mary Magdalene, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Um, I don't think, I don't read this as them chastising her. I think that it's an invitation to process. It's Easter, but the world is still broken. We see a lot of pain. We see a lot of hard things. And when Jesus asks her, why are we weeping? I think it's an invitation for us to process that and then to process our pain and examine what it is has left us with a feeling of discomfort in this season of Easter and think about ways that we can be Easter people. What's a way that you can be an Easter person and someone who can live into the brokenness of the world that we still see today and, you know, not just see, but we, we are in the depths of it every day but live in a way that we know ours is a risen Christ. I invite you to think about that. That's something I'm thinking about a lot. We'll be right back, and I'll be talking with Laura Wilson.
Hey, welcome back to Faithfully Memphis. This is Emily Austin from the Episcopal Church in West Tennessee. And today I am delighted to have on the show Laura Wilson, who is a resident of Jackson, Tennessee. So she's in our little West Tennessee faith family. So welcome, Laura. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So the reason why I asked you to be on the show and to join us on Faithfully Memphis is that you and I have kind of, we we found each other on Twitter and you have a, a really deep background. Your Orthodox faith is really central to the work that you're doing and it's, it's PhD work right now, but you're also an artist, you're a mother, you're a practicing Orthodox Christian. You know, those are, those are like kind of my glib little ways that I think of you. How would you describe yourself and the work that you're doing? Those are all good descriptions. I think maybe the big thing that you left out is that I, which I don't know that you know about is that I work here at a mission church in Jackson. Mm-hmm. I helped found this mission about 10 or 11 years ago. And I, you know, I don't have a title or anything. I've just been a volunteer here. I actually volunteer here once a week to yeah. do secretarial work right now. Yeah. And, and I chant and I teach classes. So the yeah. mission life and just being here at my, at my church is a huge part of my life. Tell me a little bit about your church. I have to admit that my depth of knowledge on Orthodox faith is really shallow. I think if folks are listening in from Memphis, you think the the first thing you think about is the Greek Orthodox church that is here. Is that, how does your practice and your congregation fit into that Orthodox tradition? Yeah. Well, so we are Antiochian Orthodox. Okay. But all the different Antiochian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox churches, we're all in communion as one larger church. So, yeah, so we're Antiochian, and we're the only Orthodox church in the Jackson area. So the closest churches to us are Memphis or Nashville. And so our community is actually not most of us. There's a few Arabic families, but mostly it's you know, we have a mix of Greek families and Russian families and then most of oh, American families. Gotcha. And before we started the mission, we used to attend St. John Orthodox Church in Memphis. Yeah. So we'd have to drive like two hours to go to an Orthodox church. Um, so, we're yeah, we've just it's kind of nice to like start this community from the ground up, which means you kind of get your hands in every aspect of the liturgical life. Like, Boy, is that the truth? Yeah. Like, oh, we better learn how to bake the prosper bread. We have to learn how to chant. We have to learn how to do these services. Mm-hmm. We've got to get a building, you know, like learning. And then now we, now we have a full-time priest and we have a full-time choir director and, you know, we're just a thriving church now, but we weren't that's, in the beginning. <laughs> so it's like a huge change. And that's a beautiful thing to hear because I mean, at least in our Episcopal circles, we, and, and I think in the larger mainline context, we hear so much about like the, you know, I'm using air quotes right here, like the, the dying church and how churches are, you know, languishing and to hear about a young congregation. I mean, not necessarily young in age of the parishioners and the folks who are drawn to that community, but folks, but the, a church that is thriving. And 
it's been in the last few years when we see so much just, oh man, another word that kind of makes me cringe. We see so much disruption to see a church thriving. That's, that's something to speak of. Yeah, I guess so. Cause this did all start before life got so crazy, <laughs> but yeah. we've really, even just this last year has been a huge year for us. And it, it's interesting because people tend to find us. They come to us, you know, I mean, we, yeah. we, we have done a lot of outreach efforts and yeah. I feel like they're never successful. Like, you know, you just can't market Christianity, yeah. but, right. but the people who come to us, it's because they sought us out. And yeah. I don't know. It's always, that's encouraging to me. I'm just like, wow, you like us and you want to learn about this faith. Let's show it. Let, come on in. Let me show you what we do and, and who, you know, who we worship and how we worship. And it's yeah. always really exciting. So this was not a, a faith that you are a tradition that you were particularly raised with. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. What context were you raised with and kind of what, tell me the story about how you are, were led to where you're at now. Yeah. Well, I, so I was raised in the churches of Christ. I had a, a really beautiful up, upbringing. My dad is a minister and my mom is wonderful. She, you know, taught Sunday school growing up and, you know, I learned the Bible and I don't know, I just, I had a really great religious experience growing up. So I was never looking for something else. I didn't go looking for it. Um, I, I feel like this is a story I've told a lot of times, but so honestly, what happened was my sister-in-law became Catholic. And from what I was taught, I felt like I needed to show her why that was wrong and she and I didn't know each other really well at the time. And so we were able to just have these conversations without it being too emotional, I think. Yeah, and so yeah. I think that helped. And it just really caused me to dig into church history. And I think in general, you know, just learning the bigger history of the church and seeing my place uh -huh. in it, I started to see um, historically and geographically that the church was so much bigger yeah. than what I had always known and, and learning the theology of the early church and mm you know, the things that they focused on, the mm -hmm. specifically the incarnation and the Trinity, that those were the core doctrines and that they inform everything else we do. I just thought that was so beautiful. Yeah. And I just, I was just so won over by it. My husband and I, we both grew up in the churches of Christ. And so all of our families are church of Christ. He worked mm -hmm. for a church of Christ university. Uh -huh. And so it was, it was really hard to leave. Honestly, yeah. it was, it was really difficult. It was hard and it's still hard on our families. And so there's a lot of sadness about that, I guess, because, yeah, yeah. because we love those traditions we came from, you know, we love right. our families, <clears throat> yeah. but it, I think we just kind of reached a point where we had seen so much and our, and you know, when you, and when you like experience something like I had a miscarriage and we were grieving, yeah. you know, when you experience something like that, when your faith becomes really important, it was yes. like, I need to pray in this Orthodox way. I need to, mm -hmm. I need to mourn in this way. And it was just, at some point we reached a point of no return. We were just like, we have to do this. So I think it, all in all, it took us about eight years from the first time we visited mm -hmm. an Orthodox church until we were actually chrismated. Yeah. So yeah. it was a long, it was a long time and it was hard, but now, you know, we're another 10 or more years out since then. And I feel yeah. like I can see God's hand in all of it and his, his mercy in it. It was, it's been a blessing. It was hard, but it's been a, a gift too. I, I love what you're talking about in terms of there's not like, there's not a conversion. There's not one conversion experience. It's 
you walk a path for a long, long time, and then maybe you formalize something in your own faith. And, and that would be the part that you, you know, we, we enshrine in a lot of rituals and, you know, per- profession of faith, but, but there's always work that's going on for a long time leading up to that. You're also an artist. Yeah. Is there an overlap of your spirituality and, and the creative aspect of, of the work that you do? Yeah. In a couple of ways. So that, yeah, that's my undergraduate training. I was mm-hmm. uh, a degree in art and I am a painter and I like <laughs> my art was always had some kind of like religious themes in it, but I always felt like it was separate. It was like not yeah. related. These are separate things mm-hmm. because because in, in undergraduate, I had a, a degree in art, but I minored in New Testament Greek. And so I was always taking these things side by side, but I, yeah. I didn't see them as related. And so when I was studying orthodoxy, it's funny because anytime I saw, or I was studying church history in general, mm-hmm. that's right. Whenever, anytime I saw the word icon, I was yeah. curious about those, but I didn't really think they mattered. Yeah. And, yeah. And anytime it came up, they always mentioned orthodoxy. And so one day I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm going to have to figure out what the orthodox thing is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so I remember thinking that this was just like a total side quest, you know, it, like it was not, it was not really part of the main thing until I like the first book I picked up and read about orthodoxy. It was like, my mind was blown and I was like, Oh, you know, I mean, it was like from then on, you know, that's when yeah, everything yeah. changed. But so it was funny that it was like, it was kind of art that I never saw as connected that right, pushed right. me that way. And so the first person I contacted at St. John Memphis was Curious Susan. She's, she used to paint icons. I think she doesn't anymore, but she offered icon workshops and I wrote her and I said, I'm not Orthodox, but I'm an artist. Can I yeah. attend this workshop? And so she, and she was great. She was like, come on. And so my first visit to an Orthodox church was because she invited us and we came and I attended an icon workshop and I learned a lot of theology through the icons, actually. If someone is listening and they, and they're not really familiar with what an icon is, can you kind of, in, in very general terms, can you kind of describe what, what you're referencing? Cause I, I mean, I, I think of, of icons as almost like a prayer card, like I think of it in terms of like a card or maybe a depiction of a saint or another person, Christ from the, from scripture. And, and it shows them and maybe, I, I don't know. I Yeah. That's a, no, that's a great question. Cause I didn't know what it was either. Like I was just saying, I, and I kind of take that for granted now. So yeah. they are images of Christ and sometimes scenes of think, events in the Bible or events yeah. in the lives of a saint, but they are depicted in a very specific way. Right. Um, sometimes people will talk about like canons. There aren't actually written canons describing, but there is a pattern. We have a, a sort of a tradition and a pattern of how yeah. we depict things. And so it's not it's kind it's, of realistic. I mean, it's not, I mean, at least my, my impression of them is that it, it's, it's almost it's such a not realistic, but there's there's not a moodiness to it that there mm. would be if it were like a painting or something. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't say realistic. We would usually say they're idealized. Or, yes, it, but there, yeah, there's that's a, a spiritual. Word. Yeah, there's a spiritual yeah. truth that is meant to be. So they are typically shown emotionless, which we would call yeah. passionless. And 
I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I wish I could, I wish this was visual because I would love to show you pictures, but, but well, in Orthodox I'll, I'll churches, post, I'll post some pictures on our, on our Instagram and stuff. Okay, so great, great. You can send me some pictures for, of, of stuff you've worked on and we'll put yeah. those in the podcast. Well, Orthodox churches, so we actually have a very specific pattern of how we put orth- icons on in the church. So mm-hmm. on the front of the church, we have a wall called the iconostasis and the uh-huh. altar is behind that wall. And so, on the front, there is our doors, mm-hmm. and then on either side of the doors are Christ and the Theotokos, and then the patron saint of the church and John the Baptist, and then angels. And then around the church, there's also the festal icon. So they're all arranged in kind of a specific way that mm-hmm. is meant to kind of inform the way we worship. So, you know, we're facing Christ, and when yeah. the, the doors of the iconostasis have the Annunciation and the mm-hmm. Gospel yeah. writers on it, which are these are the people who are saying Christ is coming into the world. And so, yeah. when the doors open and the Eucharist comes forth, you know, mm-hmm. this is Christ coming into the world. So the icons are correspond to the liturgical action, and the people standing, you know, with the saints on the walls around them, we're standing mm-hmm. in this cloud of witnesses. I love that. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So yeah, that's that's what it's all about, and I, and you you can learn so much from the yeah. Icons. Like if you look up a specific, you know, if you're interested in Pentecost and you look up yeah. a Pentecost icon, you can learn about the theology of the church by the way things are arranged and depicted, and you know, so there's there's so many different things like that. Yeah, and you know, when I, sometimes I think that we tend to say, well, you know, the reason why there's all this beautiful stained glass that we saw in the middle. Like that was like created during the Renaissance and the Middle Ages. It's like, oh well, it was a pre. Yeah, there there wasn't as much literacy, and so we had to use art in our churches to really explain things to the people. But it's like it the I it seems to me that like the idea of integrating art into these sacred spaces just it goes to show that like we can still learn stuff from art today. This is yeah. not something that's just from like 500 years ago. There are yeah. things that, that are visual. And probably the thing I didn't say that's the most important is that it, because it is about teaching visually, but it's teaching very specifically about the incarnation that because Christ became a man, he put on the stuff of creation so that we could see him. And so we can use the stuff of creation to depict him now. So, you know, in the Old Testament, when God said, no one's ever seen me, so you can't depict me. That's not true now. We have seen yeah. Christ. So we don't ever depict God the Father in icons. At least we're not supposed to. Sometimes there yeah. are images that are a little <laughs> non-canonical, yeah. but, but we're not supposed to depict God the Father, but we do depict Christ yeah. and we depict the saints who bear the image of Christ. And so these are things that we can see with our eyes. And so we can depict. And I love that in something that just occurred to me now. We're, we're recording this on what we, you know, refer to in the Western church as Maundy Thursday. We're heading into Good Friday tomorrow. And then the Western church's celebration of Easter is in just a couple of days, but you're listening to this later in the week. And, and it occurs to me to bring up that the Western church and the Orthodox church were on different calendars. So it, it and forget. The Eastern Church or the Orthodox Church is going to be celebrating Easter. It's like a couple weeks after the Western Church, right? Just one week this year. Okay. It's on the right. 16th. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, for Easter is our Palm Sunday, like the yes. little Simpsons. Have you seen the little yes. Simpsons graphics? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. I have. Yeah. I, I, I love, I love a good. 
Palm Sunday joke. There, yeah. there's, just, there's a lot of material there to, <laughs> to mess around with. So, you know, we were talking a little bit about how, where you were sharing how you're just digging into the history of the church and maybe studying scripture and, and where that, how that early church was formed. It, it makes me want to remind everyone that there, there are different iterations of Christianity where we're not on the same calendars and we don't do all the same things all the time. And, and I love that. I, something that we were talking about off air is that we are better because we have diversity among us. Yeah, definitely. I, I sometimes wish we were on the same calendar because I, I want to share this experience with all my other Christian friends, but it does give you the opportunity to visit <laughs> and you can go to your church and then you can come see ours too. Yeah. Yeah. So how, having grown up in a sort of evangelical Western tradition, are there any like major differences between the way Holy Week and Easter are celebrated in the Orthodox church from the way that you were raised with? Well, every, everything is different. <laughs> Maybe not, not so much from uh, how you celebrate probably, but I didn't celebrate Holy Week or Easter as a religious holiday growing up. Yeah. It was just the Easter bunny and a new Sunday dress, you know? So for me, the experience of Easter as the resurrection of Christ was new and Holy Week itself was new. So, but my first experience of Holy Week, you know, was this Orthodox, this full experience. And it's just incredible. We have services every day of the week. So it's like uh-huh. this very intense week. And, you know, there's all this fasting and there's all these physical things that we do. We have, mm-hmm. we have the service where we carry the cross of Christ into the church yeah. and hang him on the cross. Yeah. And then on Friday, we take him off the cross and, and wrap him in a winding sheet and lay him in a tomb. And then Friday night, we carry the tomb. Uh, it's the beer. We carry the beer around the church. Mm-hmm. And then we, take the body out of the beer and carry him into the altar, which is the final tomb. And then on, so then on Pascha, you know, when we get to the Easter uh, mm-hmm. service at midnight, when the light comes out of the altar, yeah. that's, we have watched Christ. We have seen him progress to the altar, to his yeah. tomb. And then he's coming out of there. Wow. So, you know, we, we walk with him through the whole week there and it's just, it's intense and it's really beautiful. Yeah. I'm going to be praying for y'all next week as we are, you know, celebrating the season of Easter, I'll be praying for you because it can be, it, it is a heavy time. It, it's a time where you feel that incarnational spirit and are reminded that Christ did take on a human body. And yeah, I, I, I'm kind of left without words. It's, it's a very ineffable yeah. feeling sometimes. Yeah. So for the last several weeks on Faithfully Memphis, we've been talking about women in the church and how we all play a role. Um, Every single person who God creates is a member of his family and is a divine creature just as a, as a result of being his creation. Talk to me a little bit about your work around female deaconesses in the Orthodox church, because I feel like from 
the things that I've read around and the discourses that you've been a part of, a lot of the conversations that I'm hearing are very similar to the ones that even in our very progressive mainline Episcopal church here in the United States, there, there are, you know, conversations around how certain people should not engage in certain types of ministry, AKA women. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think that the waters get muddy really quickly. Yeah. And everything comes up all at once and people are like, but what about this? And what about this? And, and, It just gets so muddy so quick. And I think for me, what I really am trying to do within the Orthodox tradition is to find where are these lines, you know, because we don't want to draw lines within humanity, right? We're all anthropos. We're all, we all share the same nature, which is a very specific term in Orthodox theology. You know, we say that God is three persons in one nature. And so nature has a very specific meaning. And Christ for the Eastern Orthodox has two natures. He's fully divine and fully man. Mm-hmm. And that is how the incarnation heals us and brings salvation because he shares our human nature. And so that, that idea of nature is really important. And so for me, one of the, one of the points I really am trying to make because people are sometimes careless with their terms is that women share the same human nature as men, which really, you know, should not be controversial. And I think most people like on a gut level are like, yeah, yeah, that's true. But so then they, then there's always a, but, and they, yeah. And I think that that really is just a matter of not being careful with our terms. They want to say, but, but women and men are different. And I, I'm not disagreeing with that. And I think, especially in Orthodox theology, we do have a, a lot of spirituality that recognizes the goodness of our bodies, of the Theotokos bearing Christ, her birth giving a feminine image. And it's yeah. very, a very powerful image that we, so of course, of course we're different, you know, yeah. and of course there are good things about those differences. So the distinction I want to really make is that we share one nature mm-hmm. and our differences are not a matter of human nature. And so I, I feel like one of the reasons why I'm interested in female deacons is that they kind of illustrate this. We have this history of women deacons. Women deacons were always distinguished from the male deacons. They, yeah. they never did the exact same things. And so some people want to say that means they're totally different. Yeah. But but they, they it's kind of a chicken and egg type thing. It it's is. like yeah. where, I mean, women typically historically have, have done different things because and it has nothing to do with with church or living in a faith community. It's just yeah. you get relegated to certain roles that you might not have chosen on your own. Well, and the Orthodox Church, they did often just give women deacons gender specific tasks because they said, oh, you know, it's not appropriate for the men to go into the women's homes. Yeah. You can do that. And so they ministered to women in their homes. Or if a woman needed to speak to the bishop, a, a deaconess attended with her. And during yeah. the sacraments, a woman assisted in the baptism. She could carry communion to the home. So she assisted in the sacraments. She assisted in pastoral care. And she did so in, in actually very gender-specific ways. And so for me, I think when you look at this, it actually, the diaconate with this single, I, this single ministry, which is the ministry of Christ, is expressed in two different gendered ways. 
Yeah. And so I feel like that's really very parallel to our humanity. We have a exactly. single humanity expressed in two different gendered ways. And so I think for people who who react badly against that, I think that they're afraid that I'm trying to deny the difference, which I am not. I'm, I'm trying to say, no, the difference is illustrated in the diaconate yeah. and it's good. Yeah. And But it also illustrates our equality it, it is, illustrates both equality and difference in the yes. same image and i think that's what's so exciting about it yeah um, so so i think that's what why i keep pushing on it because it's both it's not something that you know tr- people who are want to protect our tradition of a male priesthood need to be yeah. afraid of because the orthodox church had female deacons and never had male priests and yeah. so this image can cooperate with that and so I guess it, it's something that conservatives can say, wow, this supports our gender distinction. Yeah. And progressives can say, wow, this supports women's equality. And we can come together on that. You know, we yeah. can see like it's good for both. So, so uh, that's what I like about it. So can you talk to me a little bit about and, and just be my my explaining person in explaining like the different clerical role within the Orthodox church between a priest and a deacon, because I know that in depending on which Christian tradition or which denomination you're talking about, like deacons, we're using a common term, but it it looks very different denomination to a denomination. That's true. And and I know a lot of the theology I'm talking about here is, does not necessarily translate into your church because well, where you do have women well, priests. In the Episcopal church and in the Anglican church, I believe a deacon is a ordained role. It's, yeah. it's a, there is an ordination process to it. However, you know, in, in my Presbyterian upbringing, a deacon was almost like a, a it's almost exclusively a lay leader. Hmm, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, but in our church, it is a it's an ordained role. Okay, in Orthodox theology and history, the bishop is his primarily primary role is the Eucharist. But as history went on, he delegated a lot of that to the presbyter, which we call yeah. the priest, but that's the presbyter. So the, that's the Eucharist, same. That's that's very right. analogous to the way that we do things in our. I try uh, I try to use church. the word presbyter to not confuse things, but I often forget. But yeah. So the um so they're together. Their role is the Eucharist. The bishop also ordains others, and the priest does not do that. The presbyter doesn't do that. So that's their primary role, and they're both ordained. And then the deacon is also ordained, but he does not offer the Eucharist, and he does not conduct any sacraments. He assists. In the okay, well, that's actually almost completely analogous to the way okay. that we do things in the Episcopal tradition. Yeah. yeah, cool. Yeah, so for us, because we have such a strong image of Christ the Bridegroom within our theology mm-hmm. and the Eucharist as the marriage supper, and it, this this week in Holy Week, we have yeah. these bridegroom services yeah. on yeah. Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday night. So the image oh, of wow. Christ going to the cross is Christ the Bridegroom. And so, now I want to drive to Jackson and come and well, visit come y'all. on. <laughs> yeah, I might I might take my Easter Monday and come visit y'all. Yeah, um, that would be great. Sounds beautiful. <laughs> so the bridegroom is a really important image for us. And so the priest, when he offers the Eucharist and when we commune, we are embodying the bride. And so this bride and bridegroom image is just it's central to our understanding yeah. of the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. So the deacon, though, when he's assisting at the Eucharist, he's not the bridegroom. And so he doesn't, you know, in that way, when there were female deacons, even though they didn't assist in the altar the way the male deacons did, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't disrupt that icon for a woman to assist. 
So yeah. she did assist in baptism and she carried the Eucharist outside of the liturgy. She would carry it to people's mm-hmm. homes, which is yeah. a diaconal function. But, but again, I'm, I'm not trying to yeah. say she did the exact same thing the nails did. She right, didn't. Right. But, but in doing those things, she's like the virgins, you know, in the, in the parable standing outside yeah. waiting for the bridegroom. She, yeah. it's a diaconal function that is still very feminine. So she wasn't transgressing a male image. That's how I understand all of this and why I, I find it so beautiful and how it, it works together with our historical theology. Yeah. Oh, it sounds wonderful. It mm-hmm. sounds beautiful. I love to hear how different churches observe these really holy practices. And well, and I will say just St. John in Memphis was the first Orthodox church I ever attended. And it's just the most, I, in my experience, I feel like it's just the most beautiful church. So if yeah. you want to go somewhere next week, they have all the same services we do. And yeah. um, so that they're closer to you too. Although I'd love for you to come here, but oh, St. John's well, I, I, you know, Jackson is not too far from Memphis. No, all. it's not. Yeah. yeah. So what is the state on women in their role in the Orthodox Church today? I mean, are there any places where you could find a female deacon or is this something that is you're really pushing for? Or is it is this a historical conversation that you're a part of? and you're pushing for something to return or is this or is it more like you're advocating for a more widespread acceptance of people who are all women who are already in these roles yeah that's a good yeah that's a good question i i research the history of women deacons so that's what i'm doing right now i'm mostly Mm -hmm. just talking about the history and their historical theology so i'm not really like in a place of advocating for Uh anything right now I'm just really consumed with my own research. Yeah, yeah, because you're a PhD candidate that, yeah. and and a mom of three, and a wife, yeah. and an artist. So you know, you gotta. You, there's there's only so much yeah. we can all do. But there are there are people who are advocating for its restoration, and I'm not opposed to that. I do I do feel like it should be informed by this historical theology and be if it's if it were to be restored, it would need to be restored in a way congruent with the past. And with our theology, you know, all of the offices have adjusted over time. So it's okay. It's not exactly identical, but it needs to be within that same theology. But saying that there are uh, women deacons in Africa right now, the Patriarch of Alexandria ordained. Well, no, sorry. He appointed women deacons, deaconesses. He did not use the the right of ordination from Mm -hmm. the Byzantine rite. But there are actually a lot of different rites, historical rites, and they're not all to the higher order. So that's not, that doesn't make it outside of the tradition. It just makes right. it not the Byzantine, right? So they, and, but besides that, women serve in the church in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that's something I think is really important to mention in the Orthodox church. Women do basically everything except yeah. the ordained roles right now in, yeah. in the U.S. I guess I'm looking at, you know, I, I chant and read in church. Mm-hmm. I have served on our parish council. We have women in faculty roles at, at schools and, you know, women who lead all sorts of ministries and churches. So I, I guess I feel like I, I have never felt personally held back from anything yeah. except an ordained ministry. I, I, I can do any, it, it, pretty much anything else I want to do. And my, and my priest is so supportive, you know, any kind of ministry I want to do, he's willing to work with me and help, help yeah. me work that into, you know, so we have a food pantry yeah. and we have other ministries here teaching children and other ministries. And yeah, I feel like the church is very accepting of women's gifts. 
Well, thank you so much for letting me ask you all these sort of probably basic questions. And I just, I'm, I'm grateful for your witness and I'm grateful for people like you who care enough to do this historical work and make our church one that is alive. It's not something that is just from, you know, 2000 years ago, but carrying the torch. So thank you, Laura. Thank you. It's been so nice to talk with you and get to know you. Where can people learn more about you and see your work? And how can people visit your church in Jackson? Tell me, I'll drop all your links. (laughs) (laughs) I do have a website for my artwork. I'm not really making a lot of art right now. I'm pretty consumed with my research. But MaryLauraWilson.com is where my artwork is. And my church is St. Nicholas Orthodox Church in Jackson, and our website is orthodoxjackson.com. I'm actually the webmaster for that, too. (laughs) We would love for you to visit. And um, we have a festival in December and Holy Week, you know, like every every Orthodox church. So Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you. And I'll be sure to put all those links and stuff in in the show notes for the show. Thank you. Thank you for joining me this week for Faithfully Memphis. My name is Emily Austin from the Episcopal Diocese of West Tennessee. You can learn more about our church on our website, edwtn.org. It's a great place to find a Episcopal church in West Tennessee that is open, that is inclusive, um, that has a community that is ready to embrace you and love you 
exactly the way that you are. You can listen to past episodes of our show, Faithfully in Memphis, on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, all the usual places. Um, we have about two and a half years of amazing conversations that will really, really crack you open and, and I hope challenge you to think about how big and expansive God can be. If you like our show, it helps us out a lot. If you go on to Apple Podcasts and leave us a positive review, that, that helps us to fall in front of new ears. We want to thank WYXR, our Crosstown Radio home, for giving us the opportunity each week to bring Faithfully Memphis to you. They are actually going to be entering a pledge drive next week, so... I encourage you to go on their website, wyxr.org, and make a gift. Until next time, stay safe and stay positive. Bye.